Khalid Masood on my analyst's couch. That's what we're going to be doing today. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist and your terrorist therapist. I'm here to help you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Well, the ink on the London terrorist attack hasn't all been spilled. <laughs> the television cameras haven't stopped. And all of the answers to the questions about this mystery have not been revealed. But going from what we know so far, and there's a fair amount, I'm going to be putting Khalid Massoud, the perpetrator of the London terrorist attack, on my couch today to figure out and explain to you why it is that this man did such a thing. When you look, every, you know, as a psychiatrist who um, is psychoanalytic, uh, of course, I find the roots for everything in childhood. And that is the same story as we are going to hear about Khalid Massoud, uh, who actually was born Adrian Elms, and then he was raised Adrian Ajayo, and then he died Khalid Massoud after he was converted to, to radical Islam. Um, we can see the beginnings of his uh, problems at his birth. But what's, what I want you to pay attention to here is we are going to go from his troubled childhood through uh, what that caused him to do, what the path that that led him on, to his ultimately being in prisons several times, to his being um, radicalized in prison to his then becoming uh, a radical Islamist who went to the Middle East, who came back to the UK, and who ultimately uh, perpetrated the attack. So the, the, this is not the only story that reads like this. This is, Khalid Massoud is a perfect example of what happens in the lives of most terrorists or many terrorists. Actually, there has been there have been studies to show that at least 50% of the terrorists involved in terror attacks have had some experience with, have been incarcerated, some experience with the criminal justice system. Now, of course, you know, going backwards again, people who end up in the criminal justice system are typically people who have had troubled childhoods. So it all kind of fits together. And that's why we need to look in our de-radicalization programs, not just at what people are doing in their most recent years before they get involved in a crime uh, related to terrorism, but really tracing it back to the influences of childhood. And of course, also um, to what goes on in the prisons and how uh, those are hotbeds of terrorism that we need to take a much firmer stance on because many things can be done to uh, prevent that from happening. So going back to Khalid, or shall we say, um, Adrian Elms, he was born uh, to a 
17-year-old single white mother in, in the UK. And uh, in, now this was in the 60s because he's, he was 52 at the time of the attack just recently. He was born on Christmas Day, ironically. Uh, and he was raised by this single mother, obviously not under great circumstances. There was a lot of racism. I mean, he was, there was prejudice against him from the get-go because she was a single mom, because she was 17, and because he was black to a white mother. She eventually, two years later, when he was two years old, she married a man named Philip Ajeo. I might be mispronouncing that, that uh, last name, but it was something like that. He was Nigerian. And um, the family did then have better circumstances. Uh, and he went to a middle school. He started school in a, he was a middle-class boy. And he went to a school, uh, middle-class school, and he, um, so he, he went, he, again, he was born Adrian Elms. His, then when his mother married um, a man who became his stepfather, he became a Adrian Ajayo. And that's who he was during these school days. Now, the reason why I'm sort of making a point of that is that part of his problems have to do with his changed identities. And then, of course, after he was converted to radical Islam, he changed his name to Khalid Massoud. And, and changing one's identities, especially starting when you're a child, um, has a very devastating effect, very confusing effect at the least. And as I was saying, he was subjected to racism and, um, even in his school, like what's, what's really amazing to look at, and I, I refer you to uh, the internet where there are pictures of him with his, pup his fellow pupils um, at, at school. And he, what, you know, you can tell a lot by looking at school pictures because, um, you know, sometimes if, if someone is kind of, um, on the edge of a line or all the way in the back, like the last person, the last kid, um, you know, or if they're not looking happy, you can, you can tell a lot from that. Now in these school pictures, he looks <laughs> just fine. Uh, he's smiling and he's in the middle of his schoolmates. He's not left out on the side. And yet there was apparently uh, from from, you know, from his childhood and including being in school, there was this undercurrent of racism. In, in, I mean, he, uh, in this picture, actually, the, the pictures, uh, he is the only black child in the pictures. Now, he was thought to be intelligent. He was a, a great athlete. And of course, that made him popular uh, because he was on teams for the school. And, um, but he was called Black Addie. This was Huntley School, and Huntley School for Boys. And so, you know, the, the hint of racism was still there. And while he was in school, and he was popular, relatively popular, um, you know, despite that, I mean, I guess because he won for this, 
was helped the school to win and so on. Uh, and there were students, there, were, there have been interviews since the attack where um, they've interviewed kids who went to school with him and he, um, he was, one student said, an old classmate said, he was a smashing guy, really nice chap. Uh, another one said, everyone got on with Adrian. He was a lovely bloke. Well, <laughs> what turned this lovely bloke into the murderous terrorist uh, that we saw in the attack? Now, the, um, the uh, after school, you know, the school situation, albeit with some kind of a hint still of racism, uh, still was apparently enough to hold him together. Although people have also said that they, even, even during those times, that there was always a hint that he had a chip on his shoulder and um, there was kind of a dark side to him. Many people who have been interviewed since the attack have said that there were two sides to him. On the one hand, uh, that he was polite and he you know, was good at school and good at sports and he was friendly and all of that. But they, even during, throughout his life, there are people who have said that there was this dark side. And so after school, he started at 18, he was into dealing drugs. Um, he got a criminal conviction for damage to property. Um, he left town with uh, a string of debts behind him. Someone said that he was heavily into cocaine. Um, then, so this is 18 and 19, he, you know, he was, um, he, started, he started getting into more and more crimes and being arrested for crimes and so on. And then um, at 28, he met this woman at the chemical plant that he worked at, and he uh, tried to get his life back on track. He, it, this was, he, he, they got married, they had a daughter, they had another daughter. He had, he had got this job, you know, uh, where he met her in a chemical company that supplied cleaning fluids to hotels and restaurants. He began studying for a university degree. He tried to set up his own, his own business, but his feelings of alienation and resentment continued to grow. Uh, one person said, for example, he was very intelligent, but always slightly sinister. He was a bit racist. Then, um, so that was, that was in when he was 28. And then when he, in, in 2000, he moved, his parents, his mother and stepfather had bought a farm. And his mother, his mother is amazing. There are stories about his mother who um, it makes sells, well, she had a, a number of different jobs, and, and she currently is retired, and she sells um, pillows, handmade pillows and uh, handbags, and um, there's this picture of a pillow that says home on it with hearts and flowers, and I mean, she's the epitome <laughs> of what you would imagine a, um, oh, a, a lovely... <laughs> a lovely mother on a living in a farmhouse in England would be. A, uh, the grandmother, actually. Uh, because he had, um, Khalid has had three children. So anyhow, then he, um, he 
he soon when he was living he and his he moved back to live with his parents he's his move he's moved around uh like over 15 times probably that, that's that's probably within the within the uk 15 times but then he also moved to the middle east uh various places there too so he's he's had a very unstable life and in and out of prisons and uh in and out of relationships with women as well um so when he was living, but when he tried to, and each time he's tried to uh, settle down and tried to have some more stability, things have happened because his underlying unrest and, and anger has uh, shown through. So when he um, was living with his parents in this farmhouse in, in, uh, in a rural town, um, he, went, he got into a fight in a pub. And he, it was supposedly he, he um, interpreted either a man really did say something racist or he interpreted what the man said as racist and he flew into a rage. And he um, cut the man across the man's cheek, leaving a three inch, inch gash. And it's kind of interesting that this was um, he, he had an other some other knife attacks as well and in the attack in london this past week uh he attacked the guard with a knife so this has been kind of i mean that was of course after running down pedestrians in his car on the bridge but knife a knife has been his uh, weapon of choice from early on so he he was charged with unlawful wounding and possession of an unlawful we weapon and he had to move his family and then also he moved into prison he was in jail at that time for two years and then in september 2003 when he was living somewhere else he was jailed again this time for six months for attacking another man with a knife also in the face and this was outside a nursing home but now this time uh, 2003, this was after 9-11, and the prison culture was different. Now many British extremists were in jail and under new terror laws, and the prison system was really in full swing in terms of radicalizing new recruits. And he made, Khalid made a perfect target for these prison uh, terrorism inmates, <laughs> terrorists, I guess one should say, call them what they are, uh, for, these, for these terrorists because they targeted younger men um, who were ang young, angry men. Uh, he wasn't super young at that time, but, but, um, but young enough and, um, and angry enough. And um, they they started trying to convert him. And especially also they were targeting people who had problems with their identities, problems with, with you know, being angry at society. And, and what terrorism does is give people, whether they're, whether they're in jail, especially when they're in jail, because people in jail are angry at society to begin with, even if they have nothing to do with terrorism, and, um, and are purposeless generally. That's why they get into, that's one of the reasons why they get into trouble. And terrorism gives them a purpose and an outlet to express their rage against society. So, um, 
this, so when he, and when he got out of prison, he met and married a young Muslim woman. And um, he then went to uh, Saudi Arabia. He had, he earned a qualification to teach English as a foreign language. And that was his passport, so to speak, to go to Saudi Arabia and work there teaching English. And that's what he did. And that's where he became even more indoctrinated and radicalized. Then he came back to the States, I mean, to, to the States, yes, to the UK. And um, he got a job. Uh, he joined a language college as a senior English teacher. He was supervising seven other staff. I mean, this was not a dumb man. And he achieved, um, you know, he, he was uh, achieving some success and yet the anger from his childhood the feeling of being an outcast and so on never left him and was just being more and more uh used by people who wanted to radicalize him in prison and in the middle east and this was fermenting inside of him um some people would say and he moved around from place to place um, he, then he was living with another woman and, um, he, it's not known if he divorced the woman, the Muslim woman who he, who he had married after he had gotten out of prison. I mean, he changed names and places and women. And, um, he was a very confused kind of guy who was very vulnerable to the propaganda that he was subjected to. So um, what some, again, neighbors' memories varied. Some of them described him as polite. Uh, one of them described him as like a shadow, moving around at night in black Islamic dress and a black beanie hat. He came, he did come under the attention of um, authorities, but then they decided, mistakenly, of course, that he was not a danger. Um, he... He moved, he moved to Birmingham. He moved, I can't even mention, it would take too long and it's too confusing to mention all the different places that he lived. But um, so he, again, neighbors would say uh, he had a split personality. His face would change in a moment and his eyes would go dark and look evil. Another one said his black clothes and habit of going out at night made him seem a bit like a vampire. Then right before the attack, he um, went to the South Coast and he stayed in a uh, Preston Park Hotel in Brighton. And they've done interviews of the man who ran the hotel who described him as having very white teeth, smiling, articulate, polite. He was laughing and joking, telling us stories about where he lived. You know, it kind of is like people who decide to commit suicide, which apparently he realized would be a likely um, result of his attack, that he would be killed. Um, that people who can, people in general who decide, finally decide that they're going to, uh, to commit suicide, they're definitely going to do it, are often described as being happy in the last hours or days before they actually do go forward and kill themselves. So it seems like it could have been, you know, he, made it, he had made up his mind at that point. Um, let me 
So an interesting tidbit. I mean, there are so many interesting things between looking looking at his mother and her handiwork, and um, you know, it, the things that happen to a child earliest in their life are the things that are most important. So even though she is now this, you know, sweet, she's described as really sweet and all that, uh, as is her husband. Um, well, I don't know, sweet, but <laughs> nice neighbors in this small town. Uh, they have a border collie on this farm and so on. Um, you know, it's, it's like a picture perfect kind of thing. And yet, and yet, and there, they had two sons. Um, after his mother, Khalid's mother had Khalid, she and the stepfather had two sons who have, um, who have a decent, one is a, uh, one is 40 years old. He's an account director and another who's 50 years old runs a number of florists and fabric companies. So these two uh, sons who were born later, I mean, well, one is 50 only, he was born only two years later, but still uh, they were already married. The, the mother and the husband were married and um, they already had better economic uh, a better economic situation. And then, of course, the younger son, 40, he, you know, and chimes were changing in the world as far as it being um, less prejudiced, and uh, especially when the 40-year-old was born. And so, but, what, but what's most important is those earliest years, and those were the ones that caused the, um, the major part, the seed of anger that uh, Khalid could not could not uh, get rid of that kept that kept sprouting that kept causing him to, to be violent to act out in these violent crimes and uh, so even though things had gotten better I mean you kind of wonder how would someone who's been a teacher he has seven teachers or staff under him how would how could he then go and do something like this he was having uh, what seemed like a more normal life but really all of these things and all of this conversion, the prison was so important in terms of his conversion and, of course, spending the time in the Middle East. An interesting little tidbit is that um, his daughter, he, he, with his first wife, um, he had two daughters. His first wife was this, you know, woman who is now in charge of this. Uh, her name is Jane. She's the managing director of the chemical co chemicals company where they both met. Uh, but she divorced him after he wound up in jail, well, after he had, I mean, he, after he showed his violent streak and then wound up in jail early on, which is just like um, what we've heard with other terrorist wives, uh, notably the um, Omar Mateen in Orlando. Um, he was, uh, known to be uh, from, from interviews with his first wife, and um, he, he was known to be violent towards his wife, wives. And so, um, so she divorced him, but they had two children. And he, his, his older daughter, um, he, after um, Khalid convinced his older daughter to, he, he converted her. But his younger daughter defied him, and she didn't want to convert to Islam, and she uh, didn't want to wear a burqa, 
and um, and and how there's news about how um, not only did she defy his orders to wear a burqa, but last prom prom night in May 2016, she wore. <laughs> A revealing backless dress. This is this is really uh, rebelling, right? And there are pictures of her in this. It's not only backless. <laughs> it's not only backless. It's slit up the front, and it is um, it has two very thin straps in the front. So really, uh, some of her breasts are exposed. And she's eighteen. And um, yes, she's eighteen, and she. Um, she was rebelling against her father who, um, you know, who, who was in prison and who was converted and who, uh, who um, was trying to demand that she convert. Now, her older sister um, is 24 and she converted to Islam six years before. And um, she left her mother and sister behind at their home to move in with her father and his new partner, <laughs> and and um, and sh and she uh, it was persuaded by her father to cover herself in a burqa, and she changed her name to an Arabic one. And um, what's interesting though is that she had had. I mean, this kind of explains why she was more vulnerable to her father. I mean, of course, in divorce, anyhow, um, girls, <laughs> there's the Oedipal thing that takes place and girls are more tempted to go and live with their fathers anyway. But what happened to her, but, but you know, her father was very troubled. He had been in prison uh, most of their lives or much, of, not most, but several times during their lives. So, um, uh, she, before she converted and before she moved in with her dad, in 2008, this uh, older daughter had been involved in a serious accident outside her house. She had headphones on and she walked out of the house without looking and she got hit by a van and she was very seriously injured. She had to be in a wheelchair for a while. She was traumatized and a friend of hers said she was never quite the same afterwards. And during the time that this daughter was in the hospital, um, he, Khalid, stayed with her, praying for her to recover from her injuries. Well, you know, needless to say, that would be a very strong, she probably believes, as I'm sure he told her, that it was thanks to Allah that she um, recovered and that she um, should become devoutly religious. Uh, there is nothing wrong with, I mean, it is not the Quran that is bad. It's um, the way people, the wannabe terrorists and the terrorists um, convert the meanings of the, of the Quran, twist the meanings to, to convert other people. And now this, um, this older daughter lives, was, was still, at the time of the attack, she was uh, still living with uh, her father and with the woman that he was living with. She wears a full face veil. And, um, and I'm sure in a way, it's probably harder for her to, um, well, I guess each daughter really has their own, their own problems in understanding 
uh, and living with what their father did. You know, it, it's um, the mother is being, um, there are police outside the, uh, Khalid's mother's home, the farmhouse, because they are worried that people are going to, people who are angry, of course, at the terror attack are going to um, try to uh, uh, harm his mother or his stepfather. Um, it's not clear, I haven't, I haven't come across in my research whether they're doing anything to protect his daughters or not, but I guess it's less, I don't know uh, whether, I mean, they, I would think that they, they, they should do that as well, at least for a while. Um, well, now, I, I, I usually read a letter from um, those that you send in, and I got a number of letters uh, this time, letters and emails, actually, um, emails from, and messages, and I'll tell you how to do that in a minute. But um, I got I got emails saying, um, I don't get it, how a British-born man could do a terrorist attack in London. What would make someone do such a thing? I got several emails asking for those kinds of uh, answers. And um, so that's, that's one of the reasons, plus my own interest in trying to understand what made Khalid do this. Now, if you would like to send me comments, questions that I can answer uh, on, the sh on the terrorist therapist show, um, just you can do it in several ways. One is by going to my website, which is terrorist, ter terroristtherapist.com www.terroristtherapist.com and there's a contact page and then also you can go to my Facebook page just put in the terrorist therapist and you'll come to my Facebook page and of course you could send me a message through there um, please I, I love to get emails messages and hear um, what your comments are and that can uh, help me to answer some of the things that you're wondering about and to uh, direct future podcasts to the things that interest you the most. I mean, of course, <laughs> of course, there doesn't seem to be any shortage of things that are going on in the world of terror to talk about, uh, sadly enough. Well, I think um, I will leave you with that. And again, encouraging you to contact me, encouraging you also to look at, uh, even if you don't want to write, <laughs> um, please do check out my new terroristtherapist.com website. It took me enough time to put together. There are videos, there are um, links to different articles that I was quoting in about terrorism. You can find, of course, uh, the podcast and you can find my blog. Each week I do a video as well, a blog. And, um, and my Twitter feed goes there too. So, and on my Facebook page, same thing, I, and I post articles, I post comments on articles uh, almost daily on things that are in the news about terrorism. So you can follow me on the Facebook page as well. So I want to thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. And uh, I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. It's, it's sad that there seem to be uh, one terrorist attack after another to talk about. But at the same time, 
I'm hoping that by putting these terrorists on my couch and explaining what made them become terrorists, again, the fact that they start out with severely troubled childhoods, not that every person who has a severely troubled uh, childhood becomes a terrorist, thank goodness, but um, those that then go into a life of crime and end up in prison, incarcerated in jails or prisons, um, are very vulnerable to the terrorists who are there, people who have been um, arrested on terrorist-related crimes. And there are things that need to be done on this, um, in the prisons that can help to prevent more people, the vulnerable people, from being radicalized and converted into extremists who then go on to perpetrate terrorist attacks. So again, thank you for listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist.